This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. Please visit calcedon.edu. That's C-H-A-L-C-E-D-O-N dot E-D-U to download this book in PDF format or to purchase this book. The Cure of Souls, Recovering the Biblical Doctrine of Confession by Rusus John Rushduni. Copyright 2007, Mark R. Rushduni. Published by Calcedon Ross House Books. P.O. Box 158, Vallecito, California, 95251. All rights reserved. The Cure of Souls, Recovering the Biblical Doctrine of Confession by Rusus John Rushdeny. Chapter 1 of 49 Chapters. The Confession of Sins. In the 1930s, the definition of auricular confession was a simple matter. The basic form was that of Roman Catholic practice. Other churches, that is Eastern churches and Protestants, in the main, held to variations of a common practice. The confession held a privileged character. The pastor or priest was God's minister, and hence talking to him was talking to God. The same doctrine applied to the physician-patient relationship. Because the word salvation means health, the physician is in biblical thought a religious practitioner and the culmination of physical salvation is the resurrection of the dead. Hence, the doctor-patient relationship, like the confessional, is a privileged communication. The lawyer-client privilege differs. The lawyer is the client's mouthpiece. He speaks for the man so that, even as husband and wife are one flesh and cannot testify against each other, the lawyer is the client's informed voice and has an identity with him. Less directly, this relationship also has biblical roots. Contemporary attention focuses on the idea of confession. This is not the focus of the confessional. Historically, the focus is on repentance, penance and restitution. The authoritative 1911 Catholic Encyclopedia has no listing under confession or auricular confession, but rather treats the subject under the title of penance. The texts used to confirm this emphasis are, as given in the Catholic Confraternity Translation of the Bible, quote, number 30, Therefore I will judge you, house of Israel, each one according to his ways, says the Lord God. Turn and be converted from all your crimes, that they may be no cause of guilt from you. Cast away from you all the crimes you have committed, and make for yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why should you die, O house of Israel? From Ezekiel 18.30-31 Yet even now, says the Lord, return to me with your whole heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your hearts not your garments, and return to the Lord your God. For gracious and merciful is he, slow to anger, rich in kindness, and relenting in punishment. From Joel 2, 12-13 I listen closely, they speak what is not true. No one repents of his wickedness, saying, What have I done? Everyone keeps on running his course, like a steed dashing into battle. From Jeremiah 8, 6 Bring forth fruit befitting repentance. From Matthew 3.8. These are all texts 
preceding Christ's ministry and have been used to show Old Testament origins before Christ spoke of the church's duty with respect to binding and loosening sin upon confession and restitution. In 1930, other forms of the confessional were restricted in the main to churches in the Wesleyan holiness tradition. Protestants largely followed the same practice as Catholics, but in most instances did not require private confession and penance as necessary for the remission of sins and for admission to communion. The Council of Trent declared that penance was necessary for the remission of sins, and penance was held to be a sacrament, a means of grace. Confession and penance, thus, are not an option, but a necessity, and they require the church for their administration. While the confession was in Catholic churches, private, public penance has often been required by that communion, even of kings. While public penance did not necessarily include a public avowal of sin, it could be so ordered. St. Augustine held, quote, if his sin is not only grievous in itself, but involves scandal given to others, and if the bishop judge that it will be useful to the church to have the sin published, let not the sinner refuse to do penance in the sight of many, or even of the people at large. Let him not resist, not, nor through shame add to his mortal wound a greater evil. End quote. This latter practice was by the 1930s at the very least uncommon in English-speaking countries, but it was no less an aspect of the doctrine. In the 1970s and the 1980s, many seemingly new developments have occurred, that is, public confessions, public announcements of offences, and so on. However, none of these practices are new, however much some find them to be, find them so because of their renewed prominence. In the 1930s, the Oxford movement, or Buchmanites, strongly stressed public confessions before the entire group. The roots of such practices go deeper. The early church adopted the form of government and the practices of the synagogue, the office of elders, the conduct of worship, oversight of members, and much, much more. In the Greek text of James 2.2, the word assembly is synagogue. The word church translates ecclesia, which in the Greek version of the Old Testament is used for assembly, synagogue, and so on. The church saw itself as the true synagogue. According to the Jewish view, quote, in the Bible, the confession of sin committed either individually or collectively is an essential prerequisite for expiation and atonement, end quote. In the medieval era, confession of sins as a preface to the Day of Atonement became a requirement, in part due to the influence of Maimonides. Within the church, confession has also begun to precede communion. In the synagogue, confession was made directly to God, although some 16th century Kabbalistic ascetics confessed one to another. However, religious leaders could and did exhort the dying to confess their sins, and rabbis did prompt criminals about to be executed to say, May my death be an expiation for all my sins. Confession is linked closely to excommunication in both Judaism and Christianity. St. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 5, 1-8, calls for the excommunication of a sinning member who does not see his offence as a sin. 
In the synagogue there were, and are, among the Orthodox, two degrees of excommunication. In the first, the offender is given thirty days to repent and make amends. If he does not, the second degree follows. He is deprived of all dealings with his relatives and family, and with other members, and his goods can be confiscated to a sacred use. This kind of practice prevailed in medieval excommunications. The separation from family and friends continues in the Amish practice of shunning. In the synagogue, the banned person had to lie down in the doorway after sentence was passed and his sin described and all members walked over him as they left. The philosopher Spinoza was so excommunicated and so too was Uriel Acosta, son of a Portuguese noble Jewish family. The conclusion of his band read, quote, Nobody, whoever it might be, is allowed to talk with him, neither man or woman, neither his relatives nor strangers. Nobody may show him any favour or otherwise be in contact with him under the penalty of becoming included into the same band and of being excluded from our fellowship. And to his brothers was granted a period of grace of eight days to separate from him. Amsterdam, the 15th of May, 1623. End quote. Over the centuries, the Jewish pattern has been profoundly influential over the church, far more than churches recognise or admit. Such excommunications as that of Uriel Acosta were made by the synagogue as the de facto state, and it was the act of the deputies of the Jewish nation in Amsterdam. In the late Middle Ages, the Jewish pattern was, for a time, powerful in Christendom, with the church trying offenders and the state punishing or excommunicating them. This practice began with Frederick II, the Hernstaufen Emperor, who was perhaps a secret Muslim. He created the Inquisition to enforce unity in the state. Ironically, the church bears the blame for the Inquisition, although in many areas, as in Germany, but not Spain, the bishops resisted it. The early church followed the synagogue practice for a few centuries. A public act of confession before the whole congregation, an act called exomologesis, public mortification in sackcloth and ashes and restitution. After a few centuries, the confession became private, followed by a public statement of the offence by the priest. Pope Leo the Great ended the public notice of the offence. Even earlier, not all confessions were public. As Bingham summarised the patristic literature on the subject, quote, Whence we may conclude that these confessions were sometimes public and sometimes private, as directed by the wisdom of the Church. End quote. The early Church required that baptism be preceded by a confession of sins, but this was normally a private confession. However, in cases involving others, a public confession was necessary. Quote, in case of public scandalous crimes, they were obliged particularly to promise and vow the forsaking of them. End quote. In recent years, the practices of the early church have again become very relevant. In 1968, approximately 40 million Americans aged 18 and older professed to be born-again Christians. Twenty years later, in 1988, this number was nearly 90 million, more than twice as many. A major part of this increase is due to the charismatic movement. A common estimate is that they number over 20 million. 
The charismatic groups, Catholic and Protestant, have, among other things, these characteristics which concern us here. First, there is an earnest desire to return to the early church, but not only with respect to the experience in the Holy Spirit, but in day-by-day living. This has meant that Old Testament and synagogue practices of the early church are taken very seriously. Second, the charismatic movement was in part a reaction to the student rebellion of the 1960s. Charismatic churches on the whole have a very, very youthful membership. Many members and leaders were prominent in the student movements prior to their conversion. They came from liberal and permissive families in many cases, and on their conversion wanted a disciplined and structured church. Most mainline churches have members who, in essence, visit the church and remain very private persons. In some newly built Catholic churches, the confessional is not easy to locate. With the charismatic churches, there is a love of religious authority, a demand for the church to be a family, and a strong support system for one another, which is linked to a confessional openness. All share their joys and failures and pray for one another. The shepherding system, now extensively abandoned, occasionally carried this to an extreme, but on the whole, its benefits for many couples with undisciplined and unstructured lives was very substantial. It is impossible to be in a charismatic fellowship more than briefly and not to realise that its confessional openness is part of its family structure, whereby members help one another, have no secrets, volunteer readily to do all kinds of work to help their fellow members or fellow charismatics in another community and so on. For those whose sense of being private persons is very strong, this can be strange, but it definitely echoes much of the life of the early church and is an aspect of the charismatic church's power and vitality. It provides community in a dramatic way. As we have seen, the modern perspective puts the focus of attention on the act of confession, that is, of revealing one's secret sins. In the life of the church, in the various communions, the focus has been on confession as the first step towards healing, restoration, penance and restitution. The elders and the pastor serve to help the one who confesses towards healing and health, and to rebuke where necessary. The elders have a part in this process as associated to the pastor. In the synagogue, there was one elder for every ten families, and to this day, it takes ten men to constitute a synagogue. The system of graded elders culminated in the Sanhedrin, 70 elders and was reproduced in the College of Cardinals, originally 70 elders, often laymen. The Scottish Kirk and its elders make regular visitations of all members under their jurisdiction to hear the children recite their catechism and to counsel the parents. In each and every ecclesiastical jurisdiction, the confessional, with its goal being either restoration or excommunication, has had a very important role. In each, there has been a kind of privileged status for the proceedings because of the importance of the process to the life of the church. In recent years, there have been two threats to this ancient and sacrosanct process. First, the state has increasingly claimed jurisdiction in a realm usually regarded as a theological one. Both with respect to physicians and clergymen, the privileged act has come under question. Second, 
a very serious threat comes from the character of an increasing number of people. There is much attention given now to crime, violence and other social disorders, but perhaps more serious is what is happening in the minds and hearts of people. Being a very private person has come to mean for many being one's own God and law. To illustrate, early in the 1980s I was talking with another man in a public place and the conversation made it obvious that I was a clergyman. As I stood there in the cold, my overcoat, in my overcoat and with a muffler around my neck, a burly man came up and launched into a confession. He had just finished his sentence for sexually molesting his young daughter, and he felt that he was entitled to have her back in the name of the sanctity of the family. He expressed murderous hate for the judge and his attorney, and he wanted me to confirm his own feelings. Was this a confession? Not in any biblical sense. There was no repentance, no desire to change, no evidence of anything except a determined and lawless self-will. For church or state to stand in his way, in his way was for him evil. This indictment was not unusual. Many pastors and priests report similar episodes, not quite so dramatic perhaps. One priest stated that a man tied his hands by confessing his sin and then proceeding as he had before. The consequences did great damage to the church community. More and more, the confessional is becoming dangerous because so many who use it want absolution without repentance or even confirmation for their evil ways. The sometimes explosive hostility is a growing problem. This is true of other kinds of relationships also that is, of a patient with a psychiatrist or a psychotherapist, if the patient feels at all threatened. From another perspective, however, all this simply confirms more than ever the need for the confession-restitution-restoration process. It can be argued that its existence, whatever the abuses at times, has been essential not only to the life of the Church, but also to the character of Western civilization. It has stressed the necessary link between thoughts and deeds, between committing an offence and remedying that offence, between sin and guilt, and between guilt and absolution. It is significant that criminal courts, which, in terms of this biblical pattern, once required restitution for certain offences, are now beginning to return to that practice. Some states at present give the judge the option of requiring restitution for certain offences. At any rate, it is important to recognise that confession is not merely a verbal act. It is required because an offence is in the background, and the verbal act of confession, under whatever form of practice, public or private, must conclude in an act to alter as far as possible the damage done. The harmful act must be followed by a remedial act as far as is possible. As a result, in no ecclesiastical communion is it limited to the verbal statement except where the very act of confession is callously abused. Without at least the heartfelt promise of a willingness to remedy one's act, there is no forgiveness. As Caspari summarized it, quote, connected with absolution was the obligation of penance, end quote. The modern mood seeks to substitute the verbal confession for the consequent act. This is the end of chapter 1.
The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.